Is the descent into hell a climb down? Sometimes it's just a gentle slope. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, and I seem to already be existential. We are in Canto 14 of Inferno in this podcast that walks passage by passage slowly through Dante's masterwork comedy. With the opening lines of Canto 14, we are in the seventh circle of hell. We are amongst the violent, and we have passed from the second ring those violent toward themselves and toward their own possessions to the third ring and now we come to those violent toward and against god this should get interesting without setting this passage up let's just do it lines 1 through 18 of canto 14 because the sheer affection for my birthplace squeezed me hard I picked up the strewn leaves and brought them back to that one who was already running out of breath. Then we came to the border, where the second ring is separated from the third, and where the terrifying craft of justice is made visible. To make these new things more directly manifest, I say that we came to a plain that trashes every plant in its bed. The sorrowing wood garlands this plain all around, just as the sad river garlands it. We didn't move a footstep beyond the very edge. The vast majority was all dry and deep sand, not unlike the floor that once was trodden by the feet of Cato. O vendetta of God, how much you should make everyone who's reading this tremble because of what was made manifest before my eyes. We're going to stop right before something is made manifest. This terrible plain, this big bed of sand that is unbelievably arid and dry. Well, it's a lot to say, believe it or not, in 18 lines. And it sets up the longest stretch of any bit of hell that we have come to so far a bigger expanse than that which happened before the gates of Dis. So let's get to it. These first 18 lines that introduce this, the third ring of the seventh circle of hell. The passage begins, because the sheer affection for my birthplace squeezed me hard. I want to stop right here and say two things. One, we have linked back to the canto that came before us. So you can see that the cantos are bleeding over one into the next. Before, we were with that bush that got torn apart by the dogs and the guy underneath it and then gave the prophecy about Florence always being at war but never being fully defeated because of a piece of a statue of Mars and then his weird final gross metamorphosis of turning his own home into his gallows. And now we've kind of come to the next canto, but we're still back there with that guy, that bush, because the sheer affection for my birthplace squeezed me hard. I picked up the strewn leaves and brought them back to that one, that bush that had been talking, who was already running out of breath. He's already ending what he's got to say. I mean, after all, this blood and air that spurts out of these stems in these metamorphosized souls can only last so long, right? So he's been going on about himself and about Florence and 
he's now kind of running out of steam. And also he's been torn apart by the dogs and by those suicidal squanderers. Given all that, we're still back there and we're tying forward. So my point here is that the breaks between the cantos are not necessarily as firm as when we started our walk. When we started our walk way back in cantos one and two and three, sure, there were overlap lines and then we came to the great enemy Plutus. But this seems as if something is running together. And maybe it stands to reason, because everything is in the seventh circle all the way back since the centaur, since the minotaur, right? We've been in one circle in the various rings of it. So maybe it makes sense that it's giving Dante the freedom to blow over the canto edges. I realize that I like that because I'm a modern person and I read modern poetry and I like it when modern poets blow over stanza breaks. Is it a bit unusual in a medieval text to do this? Generally, you bring a canto towards close or a chapter or a story, as in Boccaccio's Decameron. You bring something to its close and then you start anew. I also want to tell you that there's a translation problem and it's mine, not the texts. Let me go back to those opening two lines of Canto 14, because the sheer affection for my birthplace squeezed me hard. I have actually not mistranslated the verb squeezed me hard, but I've wrung a little bit more out of it than is there. Maybe I should say the sheer affection for my birthplace urged me or pushed me on or pressed me. I've given it a little more weight, and here's why. It's that sheer affection, la carita. I just want to stop and just think for one second about that word, because what it's doing there is sticking out. This is inferno. We haven't seen this word <laughs> really much at all. We've seen amor several times, many times, out of Francesca's mouth. But this word of heartfelt affection, it's tender, it's loving. And now it seems as if our pilgrim is coming into a place in which he can begin to express his affection for Florence. Just think about where we've been. We've been with Chaco, remember the glutton who gave a prophecy about Florence? You want to see that? It's back in episode 31 of this podcast. We've been with Ferranata in Canto 10. If you want to see that, that's in episodes 52 and 53. These are two figures who have talked about the destruction, the warfare, the problems, forest parties, white parties, black parties, all that kind of stuff that has happened and will happen to Florence in the near future and the warfare that Florence will have to endure. This is Dante the poet writing this, right? We don't actually think there is a Chaco back there saying that. We don't think there's a Ferranata who actually said these words to Dante. So Dante himself is writing it. And you're writing about your home birthplace, and you're writing about it in a way that shows that it's always going to be in warfare. So you are working out your suppressed rage, your sadism toward your own birthplace. Yet slowly, it seems to me, over the course of Inferno, we start to move toward a place of warmth, of well wishes, of, gosh, I wish I were back there, how much I do miss my birthplace. It's one thing to write a poem in which you work out the rage for your hometown. Let's say, <laughs> from Dallas, let's say that, you know, I wrote something about Dallas, let me assure you, there'd be a lot of rage inside of it. So, you know, about my childhood. <laughs> all the reasons I left Dallas and that I now live in the northeastern part of the United States, and I'm sure there'd be tons of bitterness to it. And that wouldn't be very interesting. What would be interesting 
is when I start to feel affection for Dallas and the, my affection for the place I'm from becomes co-equal to my rage at the place I'm from. That is what's happening in the poem and thus this sheer affection which causes me to wring a little more meaning out of that verb just so you'll hear it. Then we came to the border. So we get three lines, one tercet, three lines that connect us back to 13. And now we seem to have actually come to Canto 14 or the subject matter of Canto 14. Then we came to the border where the second ring is separated from the third and where the terrifying craft of justice is made visible. This is an interesting three-line bit because it's all in the passive. Well, it's actually in the reflexive, but it works similarly in medieval Florentine. We came to the border where the second ring is separated by whom? Is separated from the third and where the terrifying craft of justice is made visible by whom? By God, of course, but passive or reflexive verbs. Why is that important? Because the violent are being acted on rather than acting. Earlier, the damned acted on each other. They rolled those boulders back and forth in the avaricious, or they tore each other apart in sticks. And they're going to do it again. They're going to act on each other on down in Inferno, the damned are. But here, amongst the violent, it seems like it's very important that they are acted on on. They're sunk in a river of blood. They're turned into bushes. They're chased by black dogs. And now we're coming up onto others who will have been acted upon. It's important to see the violent violentness acted upon rather than acting because that is what they did in their life. They acted against others. And now in the infernal landscape, it's all been inverted and they are turned into the passive recipients of pain. The avaricious up there rolling those boulders. Sure, they're the recipients of pain having been stuck in this ditch to roll a boulder endlessly around and crash into each other, of course. And yet they're also inflicting that pain on each other. Here, amongst the violent, everybody is largely passive. This is not going to be true below us, down in circle nine at the very bottom. There are going to be people enacting violence and pain on each other. But here, in the seventh, it is important to see them as the passive recipients of pain. Even though those squanderers tore those bushes together, they didn't do so intentionally. They didn't rip through the thicket because they wanted to tear the bushes apart. They ripped through the thicket because they were trying to get away from the dogs. I just put a lot of weight on the voice here to make us see that what is going to happen is people are going to have things enacted upon them. To make these new things more directly manifest, I say that we came to a plane that trashes every plant in its bed. The poem has slowed down. We, early on, were crashing through lines of poetry. This is a moment in which the poet stops and says, now, wait a minute, I got to make this really plain to you. What's the difference between the second ring of the seventh circle and the third ring of the seventh circle? This pacing is slower. It's more deliberate. What can we make of that? Well, several things. In the modern world, a writer who slows down a bit 
tends to indicate that they're more secure in their text. If you if you watch a pacing of a novel slow down, particularly a debut novel, a you know, first piece of fiction someone's published, watch it. Watch how the pacing will race and then slow up into a more deliberate rhythm. That's because the writer has become a little more secure in the piece of fiction itself. It also indicates that the writer now thinks of himself, or sometimes herself, of course, himself here, as a teacher, as someone who's teaching you something, and so they can back up, as I do in this podcast, so they can back up and say it again so that you'll get it. It indicates a slightly shifting role, not just a tourist through hell, but actually a teacher, somebody who wants to show you something and instruct you. I think it's really important to watch him move from being a voyager, a traveler through the known universe, to being someone who explicates the known universe. That's a that's still a long way off, but I think in moments like this, when the text starts to slow down, you can see it. Of course, there's also an idea that when a writer slows down like this, they are less interested in the plot and more interested in making sure that you see what's happening. <laughs> my, what's up in my head is Henry James and how the late Henry James novels are so slow. That's because James has less concern about his reader and more concerned about what he wants to do, which is lime human consciousness. A similar idea may be going on here that Dante, the poet, I'm conjecturing this as much as I can, that Dante the Poet may be, in fact, allowing me as a reader more into the text, slowing it down a bit so that I'll see it more, offering me a little more so that we're not skating along. And finally, third, space is form, particularly in medieval lit. Space is is itself the very functionality of form, and form itself will dictate subject matter. So you have X number of words, X number of lines, X number of cantos, and I think the slowing down here that has happened since the walls of Dis indicates that the poem is growing. It's growing beyond perhaps its initial conception. And we can see this here with this slowing down. There's this plane. It trashes every plant in its bed. Nothing can grow here. Sar and then again, just to draw it out, he makes it very clear. The soaring wood garlands this plane. So those wood of the suicides that goes around this plane that we're on, just as the sad river of boiling blood went around the outside, the outskirts of that sorrowing wood. So, right, he's drawing you a map, and we didn't move, he says, a footstep beyond the very edge. Ah, let's talk about this, the very edge. The phrase in the Florentine is aranda aranda. It's a duplicated word system, aranda aranda. And in these cantos, in the third ring of the seventh circle of hell, this rhetorical form is going to happen a lot. You do it for emphasis. It would be as if I said, we didn't move a footstep beyond the edge. The edge. That's a little dramatic, and that's a little acted out for Aranda Aranda. It's really a rhetorical strategy, not an actory strategy. But still, that gives you this idea. We didn't move a footstep beyond the edge. The edge. There's a high level of emphasis here, but there's also repeated words. And we're going to come back to this. Oh, are we ever going to come back to this in the cantos ahead about why certain words get repeated for emphasis sake in this rhetorical strategy. But this is the first time in Canto 14. So I just wanted to point out to you because, wow, will I point it out to you a lot 
in what comes ahead. The vast territory, the lines go on, was all dry and deep sand, not unlike the floor that was once trodden by the feet of Cato. Cato the Elder. Any medieval reading this would instantly think suicide. The guy who committed suicide at Utica when his opposition to Julius Caesar's imperial designs became fully feudal. We just came out of the wood of the suicides. And here's a reference to Cato, this classical figure. By the way, this reference comes from the Pharsalia. If you want to look it up, it's the Pharsalia Book 9, about line 395 along in there. It's a reference in which um, Cato is running across the Libyan desert with the remnants of Pompey's army. Pompey has been defeated by Julius Caesar. Pompey's army, the remnants of it, are on the run with Cato. Here's the important thing. Cato refuses to be carried in a litter the way Julius Caesar and his imperial generals are. Of course, they're carried in these fancy litters in front of the troops or behind the troops if they're not very brave. Cato refuses a litter, and so he runs on his feet across the Libyan sands. This shows he stands up for the Republic of Rome rather than the coming empire that Julius represents. Cato's suicide is kind of the last gasp of this republican ideal of Rome. I should tell you that we are not done with Cato by any means. If you know comedy, then you know that Cato the Elder is going to come up in the most difficult way. But let's just stop right here and say... We just came out of the wood of the suicides. We just got a classical reference to Cato. He was a suicide. We're kind of surprised he's not in that wood. Or better, we're surprised he's not back in limbo, maybe, with all of those other great Romans and great thinkers where Julius is. But this is a moment in which we see him and we did come out of the suicides, so it's kind of expected. It's just going to cause us a lot of problems. (laughs) long in the future, but that's a long way away. And I should tell you one other thing, just to tell you about the history of this passage, that reference to the Pharsalia, book nine, line 395, don't think I'm so smart. This has been in the commentary, this reference to the Pharsalia since the mid 1500s. That just tells you how thick the commentary is on these passages, how long tradition has established certain readings in these passages. It's kind of amazing to think that we're sitting here on the top of a stack of books, (laughs) a stack of books the size of the Empire State Building. It humbles me, and I think it should, all of us, to know that we are reading something that is being figured out and has been figured out and is continuing to be figured out (laughs) for 700 years. Last lines of the passage. Oh, vendetta of God. Now, listen, I could translate this vengeance. Almost every other English translator does. But you know what? I don't want to because vendetta is important to my understanding of what goes on in Inferno. And the word in the Florentine is vendetta. So let's have it. Oh, vendetta of God. How much you should make everyone who's reading this, notice not listening to this, reading. The poet expects his poem to be read, not heard. Everyone who's reading this tremble because what was made manifest before my eyes. This is is clearly the poet talking to us. We've had the pilgrim explaining what he came to. He came to this border. I looked out. It was 
plain. It was all sand. It was desert. Nothing could grow there. And then the poet, the man behind the curtain, kind of steps out and says, oh, you know, listen, this should make you quake in your boots because of what I saw. And you should understand that when God makes a vendetta against you, it's going to be awful. And we are coming to those who attempted to do violence toward and against God. But let's just note something about this moment in which the poet steps forward and makes this claim about, you know, oh, listen, pay attention to this, quaking your boots, because wait till you see what happens to these people. This is a rare instance of beware of hell. How many have we seen? We are in a poem. We're deep in a poem. 14 cantos into a poem about hell. How many times have we ever heard, watch out, okay, you know, this is why you don't, <laughs> this is why you, you don't clean your plate every night because you're going to end up like Chaco or this. <laughs> this is why you don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In any other poem like this, we would have thousands and thousands of warnings. You know, the kind of watch out, you're getting close to the edge. This is a rare instance of it. This leads us to the narrative notion of inferno. The poet trusts his descriptions to carry their mo emotional weight. That seems really important and very modern. Instead of having to keep stepping back and say to us, now watch out, you're going to go to hell and it's going to be bad and you're going to have to roll a rock around, watch out. Instead of that, the poet trusts his description. There's enough weight inside the words themselves to carry their emotional import, except for rare instances like this one. Now listen, we could talk a long time, and we might talk a long time, about why this one causes the poet to suddenly offer the much more standard, be careful you're going to hell. The instances in which the poet worried about the allegory of the passage, we've seen those. We've seen those in which the poet says, you know, uh, pay attention to what's underneath my verses or pay attention to the symbolism that's going on here. We saw that at this. But that's actually the reverse side of this coin. Um, how do I say this? You're you're reacting to the scene emotionally and you might be missing all the complexities I built into it. So pay attention because the scene is so fraught, emotional with Virgil in trouble and Dante alone and the gates of Dis and Medusa. And you're, you're so, you might get so wrapped up in the emotions of this that you're going to miss all this allegory I built into this thing. Don't miss that. That's the opposite side of this coin that I'm talking about. But it indicates to me that mostly the poet trusts the emotional weight of his text. And this is what makes comedy so modern. Get ready to shake in your boots. Because what we're going to see next is terrifying for any guy who was reared in Texas on very arid plains. A place I never want to be out alone on. <laughs> So trust me, what's about to happen scares the life out of me. Come back. We're going to pass on out into this arid plain. Well, at least we're going to look at it. We're not going to step on it lest we be burned up. So come back and watch us kind of circumnavigate this incredibly arid hot spot in which all the blasphemers are kept in all of their wild and bully ways. Subscribe to the podcast, like it, rate it, connect with me wherever you find me on social media. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante.